0: Do you need help protecting your finances as you enter retirement? David Dickens of KC Financial Advisors has got you covered. Welcome to the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Hey, it's time for another Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Welcome. I'm Walter Storholtz alongside David Dickens, President and Wealth Advisor at KC Financial Advisors with an office in Overland Park. You can find us online from anywhere at CoverYourAssetsKC.com. David, welcome to the show. What's going on in your world?
1: Well, you might have heard it. There's a little football game going on this uh, Sunday with our hometown Chiefs. Just a (laughs) little bit. Our new arch rival, Joe Burrow, and the Cincinnati Bengals. So, you know, it's kind of been an exciting week in Kansas City, trying to figure out what Mahomes' ankle is going to do and what the weather is going to do. And Either way, it should be kind of a fun weekend.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm really glad um, that that is the case. And um rooting for the Chiefs myself. Hope they pull it out. Uh, it was great seeing Mahomes limp uh, limp, and help everybody to victory. Kind of that Jordan flu game feel to it a little <laughs> bit. So hopefully he doesn't have to work that hard this weekend.
1: Yeah, we'll see. I've heard uh, lots of varying reports from mm. supposed experts about what it takes to get over a high ankle sprain. So guess we'll know soon enough when he trots out on the field Sunday.
0: Well, he's an elite athlete, so hopefully he can uh, recover a little faster than us mere mortals.
1: Exactly. Something you and I, a label you and I can never claim. That's right. That's right. I mean, what,
0: Adrian Peterson, wasn't it for the Vikings, tore his ACL real badly, and he was back to running full speed and cutting (laughs) and playing like some ridiculous six months later or something really crazy like that. It was the fastest ACL recovery of all time. So yep.
1: guys- well, luckily, we're just working on a high ankle sprain, yeah. so we'll see if we can tape that this baby up nothing. and get it ready to go. There you go.
0: Well, speaking of uh, lacing it up and taping it up and getting ready to go, that's what we're going to do on the podcast today. Part one of a two-part series that we're going to explore here. This is the 10-point checklist for retirement preparedness. And uh, always good to do this kind of conversation and talk around the new year as people are trying to make goals and think about their year ahead. And so uh, we're we're not calling it resolutions or anything like that, kind of how we kind of danced around that in our last episodes. But we've got 10 concrete questions or checklist items uh, for you to think about, for you to ponder. And we're going to go over these over the course of the next two weeks. And the idea here is you need to get some concrete answers on these questions. And that's going to help you get really well prepared for retirement. So you ready to go through some of these uh, critical questions, David?
1: I am. Uh, the reason we're breaking this down is my attention span for a podcast is really about 15 to 20 minutes. And I, <laughs> when I see a podcast that says they're going to go 45 minutes or an hour, I'm like, well, not for me. So um, if you're wondering, we just did a two-part series to start the year, and now we're doing another one. Well, that's because we have, I think, 10 really important checklist items, but I just couldn't see jamming them all into one podcast. So that's where we're going. We've got 10, uh, five good ones today, five good ones next week, and, and hopefully there's something on this first list of five that you want to work through over this coming week, and then you'll be all set for next week's uh, wrap-up of the following five. Perfect.
0: Well, if you, uh, yeah, if we only spent less than a minute on each of these 10 items, well, <laughs> we might as well have just emailed you the list instead of having you listen to some commentary about it. So we want to bring some value to each of these, and so that's the perspective David will bring to us. So without further ado, let's get to the five on today's episode, David. The first one, you knew we were going to talk about income, and that's top of the list. Do I know exactly how much income I need every month? Such an important question, we, t- we, we use that word crucial. I mean, this one fits the definition.
1: Yeah, it's a key question when you're, when you're getting away from earning a paycheck and now all of a sudden you're providing your own retirement paycheck. Well, the first question is how much am I gonna need? The second question then obviously is, well, how am I gonna, where's that money gonna come from? But if people are trying to figure out, well, am I able to retire or is it time to retire? Well, the first thing you need to figure out is how much am I gonna spend in retirement? So it's um, there are wants and there are needs in retirement, but I think the easiest way to get started with this, if if you're not a budgeter, and frankly, the better you do in your work life, money-wise, the less likely it is that you budget yourself. Maybe you did that as a young adult, but when you're in your 50s or 60s and, late and, and mid-60s earning the big bucks, you're not so worried about how much you've got going out because you got a lot coming in, but once the in stops, that's when it's important to know how much you're going to spend. So if you just look back at your checkbook, like you used to do when you were a young adult and say, well, I I guess I can need to put together some sort of reasonably accurate budget. I don't need to know exactly how much, but I certainly need to know all the big moving parts. And then, so, so your checkbook will tell you that from the last two or three months. But then those easily forgotten expenses. So you don't want to forget those either. You, if you're like me, you pay your car insurance once a year. And that's, you know, that and mine happens in May. So I got to make sure that I take that number divided by 12 and make sure that I know that's a, a monthly expense for me when I get to retirement. Uh, home insurance and taxes. Let's say you don't have a mortgage anymore and you pay your homeowner's insurance maybe once or twice a year, and then your tax bill comes maybe once or twice a year. So you got to remember to put those into your expenses as well. And then most retirees, the retirees I work with are trying to do a lot of vacations, traveling, uh, grandkids stuff, maybe in those first 10 years of retirement. So you've got to make sure that you set a budget for that. And if you have a nice piece of software, well, then you phase that out after year 10 or 15, depending on how young you're retiring. But especially in those first 10 years when you got your health, you got your good attitude, your knees and hips work, you wanna make sure that you have money in there for that. And then and then gifts, a lot of times those are centered around holidays. And so you just wanna make sure that that's a component of your income need as well. So figuring out how much income you need is the first step. And those are the, those are the things you really wanna take a look at. I strongly encourage you, like any real plan, I strongly encourage you to write that stuff down. Uh, If you have saved famously well for your retirement, then it's probably not something you're going to worry about. But if you have any consternation about how you're going to put together the income you're going to need for the expenses that you want to have or need to have, make sure you write this stuff down. I
0: love that, David. And um, I want to chime in. I don't want to get you derailed here or extend the the length of the podcast too much, but something happened the other day that uh, just sort of reminded me about like, you know, our use of the word income here. And we talk about some of these buzzwords and and all this kind of stuff. You know, my my wife, Connie, she's um, part of a book club right now, and they're doing a – they're actually reading a financial book that was written. I forget the name of the book, uh, but it was written by um, a lady who didn't grow up with formal financial – um, you know, teachings from her parents. She's kind of all self-taught and learned how to get out of debt and then how to manage a budget and all that. And it's so interesting because, you know, people use different different terms and things like that. And sometimes they just break it down and this is people's exposure. Like Connie was was reading me these concepts in the from the book and I'm going, okay, yeah, I know all this stuff. But it was interesting because they're calling it like in money and out money, you know, just like really breaking it down and making it simple for those who haven't been exposed to this kind of stuff before. So, I don't know, that's just a random side thought just because we're just talking about income and we're trying to make things simple here on the show. And it's just, it was a good reminder that sometimes people don't have a lot of exposure to this world. And so in money, out money, it doesn't get a whole lot more basic than that, does it?
1: It doesn't. That, it, those are the key building blocks. And <laughs> I, I. so I have clients that have done really well during their life. Uh, but once that, um, that paycheck stops, <laughs> they can tend to get a little bit nervous too and figure out how am I going to cobble together the income i need to cover all these expenses i have so whether you've done you know really well for yourself or you've done modestly well for yourself nobody's excluded necessarily from having a little bit of anxiety about how am i going to piece this income thing together once the paycheck stops
0: mm. well it's a change right that's the that's a anytime we go through change uh, no matter how challenging it is, change in and of itself can add a little stress to our lives. And you kind of mentioned people not knowing where where to you know turn to for that income or or how in the world to go about it. And that takes us to question number two on the checklist for retirement preparedness. Once you start figuring out how much income you're going to need, then you can start asking yourself, all right, well, w- 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 in what order should I withdraw things from? Like, what what comes first? I've got these different accounts. Which one do I start utilizing? Uh, out of the gate,
1: yeah, and so that can be a little bit complicated. The conventional wisdom is that you should let your tax-deferred assets—your IRAs, your 401ks, your 403bs—let them go tax-deferred as long as possible, and in and in most cases, that would be age 73, the new age for a required minimum distribution, and that's pretty much right if your tax bracket in early retirement is going to be high. So, for instance, you've got a a couple of Social Securities. Let's just say you're, you're married. You've got a couple of Social Securities and then you've got maybe a pension or hopefully for your sake, two pensions. And so you're not really you're not taking any money out of those accounts because you don't have to. And so in that case, you probably do want to let those accounts ride tax deferred until you have to take them out because taking it out now would be an unnecessarily high tax bracket. But that's, that can be wrong conventional wisdom. If, well, if for instance, you need the money out of your IRA because you don't have a pension and in order to cobble together your income, you need the two social securities you have and money out of your IRAs, 401ks, 403bs. So that's one totally good reason to withdraw out of those monies first, because you can't afford to defer them to age 73. The other reason to to do that would be to to take money out early would be if your tax bracket is going to be higher than it is today. Once your required minimum distribution start at age 73. So I have a number of clients who right now they've got a couple of social securities, maybe they have a pension and they don't really need to take money out of their IRA, their 401k rollover. But what we know is, that including the growth they're going to get out of those accounts over the next three five seven years once they turn 73 that required distribution is going to bump them into a permanently higher tax bracket than they're in right now this doesn't even consider whether or not the trump tax cuts expire in january of 2026. this is just about once age 73 rolls around and you have to start taking money out of those 401ks IRAs, if they're big enough, then you will be in, you'll find yourself in a permanently higher tax bracket going forward. And so that could be a good reason to take money out of your IRAs or 401ks now, early in retirement, when your tax bracket is lower than it's going to be in the later years. What do you do with that money? Well, you stuff it into a A you could do a Roth conversion or you can stuff it into a brokerage account invested in things that pay dividends. Uh, which are taxed advantageously. So there, there are strategies you can use, but it's not necessarily the right thing to defer that withdrawals from your tax deferred accounts as long as possible. That's not always the correct move.
0: Okay, very good. So, so far we've covered, do you know exactly how much income I need every month? And number two, do I know which account I should withdraw from first? By the way, if you want to check out this, uh, this, this 10 point checklist that we're going over today, just check the description of today's show and we'll, we'll list out these first five and then we'll have the full 10 in the next episode, of course. Number three, David, do I know the ideal time to take Social Security?
1: Yeah, so what came to my mind was the ideal time is not necessarily the right time for any particular listener of this podcast. So the ideal time would be, when does my Social Security max out? And the maximum amount you can get out of your Social Security is at age 70. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right time for you. So I have some clients that got to be 62. Their work ended prematurely, and they need... The money, So they started at age 72. I have a couple of other clients who have good reason to believe, genetically or, or otherwise, that their life expectancy is not going to take them past their early 80s. And so if that's the case, you start earlier. Uh, let's say, for instance, you start at age 72 instead of, uh, I'm sorry, 62, instead of full retirement age of 67. Well, that's an extra five years that you'll be drawing on Social Security, an extra 60 payments that you otherwise, if you, if you die before your early 80s, uh, you're not going to get. So since Social Security is built to be actuarially sound, if you die in, let's say, 80, 81 years old, whether you started early or late, it doesn't matter. You're going to get the same amount of money out of the program. If you live past your early 80s, you'll get more by having waited. So that's it. there are some decently good reasons to start at age 62. I have a lot of clients that start at their full retirement age. And most people listening to this podcast, if you haven't already started Social Security, your full retirement age is 67. And so um, let's say you just retired and you don't quite have enough You wish you'd saved a little bit more, or maybe you retired into an early bear market and your savings aren't quite what you want them to be. So by delaying further, you might decide that you're putting too much stress on your savings by pulling that money out of your tax deferred savings and waiting to get to age 70 to take Social Security. So that's a perfectly fine reason to start at age 67. And then I've got a number of clients that say, you know what, I I don't need the money. I think we're going to live to a ripe old age of more than 82 or 83. And so they wait till age 70. And that's the that's the biggest amount of money that you can get out of that, out of Social Security. And you've been financially able to bridge that income gap between when you're retired and when you start set, taking Social Security. So most everybody knows the calculation, but all you'd kind of want to do is figure out how much do I gain in income by waiting another year to take my social security? And the calculation is relatively straightforward. You get an extra 8%. If you wait from age 67 to 68, your social security income will be 8% higher by waiting that year. So let's say at full retirement age, you're gonna get 30 grand a year. Age 67, 30 grand a year. But you you say, ah, I'm gonna wait. A year to 68. Uh, at that point, 8% of 30 grand is 2,400 bucks. So instead of getting 30 grand a year, you're going to get 32,400 bucks. If you wait another year, you're going to get an additional 2,400 bucks or $4,800 a year over and above the 30,000 you would have gotten at age 67. And then uh, one more year would take you to age seventy, which is the most you can pull out of the program. So the calculations are relatively easy. What you don 't know is how long am I going to live? And if we knew that, then all of this planning would be totally simple. But what we're trying to do is make the best the best plan, the best guess we can make based on what we know today. So there is no ideal time there's a right time for you based on your circumstances and now is a really good time to start figuring that out to make sure that if you're going to wait just to make sure you know where that income is going to come from while you're waiting after your full retirement age
0: interesting you can see just how much uh conversation there is just about timing, like that's sort of my takeaway here, David. Yeah, number one was how much income we're going to need, but then two and three, both really dealing with timing, where to take from first, when to time Social Security, what about all the other accounts, when do you turn those faucets on, and uh, that seems to be where a lot of the magic comes into play when you go into the planning process, because I can envision that's where, okay, solution for person A ends up looking completely different than person B, even if their goals are the same, even if the amount of money they have saved for retirement is the same, but maybe the amounts in the different accounts or how they're structured and all those kinds of things and the tax complications can then adjust completely different plans for the two different people.
1: Exactly, and most of that planning process is knowing what questions to ask. And so that's where that's where I come in. I don't know the answers. The person sitting across the desk from me knows the answer. So they have the best insight into the answers. The numbers are what I do really well. And knowing what the questions are is what I do really well. And then hopefully we come up with a really good plan together that meets their expectations and their needs and their wants.
0: All right. So we've got to look things in the long term as well. So part of the checklist here, item number four, is have I addressed longevity risk so that I don't outlive my money? That's ultimately the goal of this whole planning process, right?
1: Exactly. And so I'll start off this answer by saying, if this is a real concern, then I would strongly encourage you to address it. Don't ignore it. Ignoring this type of question can build up a lot of anxiety and the plan, the goal for retirement is to not be anxious, especially about your money. So addressing longevity in my world basically boils down to having a good plan that takes you to age. In my world, I like to see a plan go to age 100 for you and your spouse, if you have one, where there's money left over, including if you know the stuff hits the fan in your life and you You have unexpected expenses. So how do you do that? Well, one might be you have accumulated enough assets in your life, in your working life, where it's just not a problem, or maybe you're going to, you're expecting with a lot of certainty, some sort of inheritance over the next five, 10, 15 years, and that can help you, uh, give you the confidence. You're not going to outlive your money. I have clients that in some way or other use an annuity. For their lifetime income as a supplement to their social security income or maybe pension income and so that can help you be confident that most annuity products will pay you and usually your spouse for as long as you live if then the question is is there going to be any money left over well that's not the answer to this question that is an important thing to know but an annuity can help you guarantee that you have lifetime income, and that guarantee, of course, is provided by the insurance company that writes you the annuity. You can get, I have a couple of clients that took pensions as an individual person, not as a joint couple, or where the remainder, if when that person dies, their spouse only gets 50% of the income. But what they did was purchase a life insurance policy that they could cancel at any time. But what that does is protect the spouse if the person who has the pension dies early Um, so those are just you know annuities and life insurance policies are ways to address this particular concern if it's a concern for you again where i started with this is if it's a concern then address it there are perfectly great ways to address it don't ignore it and if the costs of addressing it are too high well at least you know and you're not sitting there questioning I wonder if there's a good solution for my problem.
0: That's helpful, David, and I think this is really an important question for people to realize that longevity risk. Living too long is not something people usually put in their like risk category throughout their <laughs> lives, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a new one that kind of gets added to the equation as we get older. Um, not, not when you're thinking about it in your 30s and 40s, typically, I would say. All right. And last but not least, we get to our fifth one here, David. Am I prepared to handle market volatility? Boy, everybody should be asking this question after what happened in 2022, right?
1: Exactly. And perhaps what's getting ready to happen in 2023. So we, we, we don't know. If you had a perfect crystal ball, well, then this would be pretty easy. What we do know is that markets are volatile, uh, stock markets. But frankly, the interest rate market was volatile last year. And we also know that our economy is cyclical. And during boom times, stock markets tend to do really well. And during periods of con- contraction, also called recessions, eh, they don't do so well. And sometimes the market will go down 20 or 25% in a recession. But sometimes the market will go down 45 or 55% in a recession. And what we don't know is, let's say over your 30 year retirement, you retire at 65, you've got good genes, you're going to live till 95. We don't know for sure how many of those market volatility periods you're going to have. But what we do know is that major downturns happen with some regularity every 10 years. And 10 to 20% downturns happen way more often than that. So being prepared to handle market volatility, I kind of think of it in is in uh, three different ways depending on your risk tolerance the first might be i'm just going to keep doing what i'm doing feeling confident that in two or three or five years from now the market's going to come back and i'll be fine and if that's who you are that's a perfectly fine way to go about it that's not who i am but if that's who you are then knock yourself out and do that but don't change strategies at the bottom of a market downturn for fear that it's gonna get worse from here. The second, and I, we discussed it on a couple different podcasts last year, is a bucketing strategy where when you're retired, you have, let's just call it three buckets of money. One is the spending that you're gonna to need to do over the next one or two years. I prefer two years. But that money is gonna be held in, let's say, a money market account. Now for the last decade, you've earned basically nothing in a money market account. But these days, since the Fed has been raising rates, well, you can earn 3 or 4% in a money market account, and all of a sudden, that's a real asset. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two would be the spending that you're gonna do from, a, from years two to five in retirement, for instance. And you may not have all of that in money market, but you might have it in some relatively short-term, high-grade corporate or government bonds. So with the first two buckets, what you feel pretty confident is, if the stuff is hitting the fan in the stock market, you don't really have to get nervous about it because you're not going to need your stock market money for five years. So the third bucket would be your stock market money. And let's just say that's 60 or 70% of your money. Well, you may get nervous during the major next downturn, but when you look at the buckets you've got, all of a sudden, you're going to convince yourself, oh, wait a minute. I have plenty of money sitting in safe places. So I don't have to worry about that. So that's the theory behind the three bucket strategy. What I use in my practice is risk reduction strategies, which we've discussed in some detail, and I'm certainly not going to go into it today, but it has to do with reading markets, kind of reading the signs of the time and say, we are in a significant downturn. And I think we're somewhat early in this significant downturn. And we're going to take a significant portion of client monies and put them into uh, buckets one and two, not five years worth of money, but maybe 80% of their money is going into that, that type of risk protected status or state. So any of these three strategies will pretty much work for you if you stick with them. No strategy works all the time. Even my strategy has some false alarms with it along the way. It causes us to be too conservative for periods that are false alarms. The strategy that's most likely to do you harm is strategy number one, keep doing what you're doing, grin and bear it, hold on until it's all over. If you're good at that, then that's probably a fine strategy too. But most people that I know won't ride out a 50% downturn in the market. Markets down 30 or 35%, they're gonna sell because all of a sudden they're nervous and they say, hey, I need this money and I might be retired for the next 20 years. So find a strategy that actually meets your, that's, that's historically sound and that meets your risk tolerance and the size of your nest egg and then stick with it.
0: Very good, David. Thanks for the great outline of these five important questions to put on your checklist for retirement preparedness. We handled the first five today. We'll have the next five in a week on the next episode of the podcast. So come back and join us for that. In the meantime, if you have any questions about something you heard about today, would like to talk to David about those. Whether it's a simple question on your mind or whether you'd like to talk about going through a full review process, you can do that by calling 913-317-1414 or going online to coveryourassetskc.com. We've got contact information in the description of today's show to make that easy on you. And David, thank you for all the help on the show today, and uh, we'll look forward to another chat in a week.
1: I'll look forward to it as well, and go Chiefs. Go Chiefs, bring it home. All right, thanks, David. We'll talk to
0: you soon, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. See you next time Uncover Your Assets, KC. Investment advisory services offered through ChangePath LLC, a registered investment advisor. ChangePath LLC and KC Financial Advisors are separate companies.